You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. So my colleague Katie Peters will introduce in a moment has just released um, a report uh, is titled The Next Frontier Disaster Risk Reduction, Tackling Disasters Fragile and Conflict Affected Context in Fragile and Conflict Affected Context, that really tries to reflect on what are you know the political and institutional barriers to adapting um, the DRR policies, DRR practice and overseas development assistance to this context. And Katie will tell us more about it, but it really reveals a, a hesitancy to explore the relationship between disasters and conflict, and really a tendency to prioritize um, peace and security over DRR in conflict and fragile, in, in conflict affected countries and fragile countries. So today we really want to focus on exploring, you know, some of the blockages, some of the challenges to analyze the you know, analyzing DRR in these country, um, countries to you know bring more innovative approaches to take steps that we can consider you know to move um, forwards and to guide these discussions I'm really joined by stellar panel in London as well as in DC although I don't see our colleague from DC <laughs> on the video screen yet I will introduce them in a, in a second but I want to first of all you know welcome all of you and welcome our online audience um, you will have a chance to contribute to our discussion through the chat that I can read. Um, so put your questions, your comments, I'll take them when we open up to the floor. Um, and for those in the room, please put your phones on silence, but do tweet. Um, the hashtag I think you can see over there is the DRR conflict. But let me introduce the panel. You know, to my left, I have Aisha Siddiqui, lecturing in human geography at Royal Holloway University. Um, to my immediate right, Amjad Abashar, who is the chief of the UN office for DRR in Africa. Um, and my colleague, Katie Peters, who is a senior research fellow here at ODI. And on video, I can see her now, is Rina Meutia, who is disaster risk management specialist at the Global Facility for Disaster Risk Reduction and Recovery, or GFDRR, as I'm, I'm sure a lot of you know, at the World Bank. But on this program of work, we're really delighted to the eye to uh, be working closely with the German government. Um, so today to open our discussion, I am delighted to welcome um, Dr. Thomas Helfen. Um, Dr. Thomas Helfen is the head of the Division for Peace and Security Disaster Risk Management at the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, better known as BMZ. Um, but before taking up his current post in 2016, Thomas also served as the head of the South Asian Division and the head of Parliament and Cabinet of Fair. Thomas, it's a privilege to have you here. Um, my colleagues can set the lectern again. We'll start with your keynote lecture and uh, keynote speech. Thank you. I think you're Thank you very much, Sarah, for your kind introduction, and thank you uh, to ODI and and all the team here to hosting this pub public event on disasters in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Ladies and gentlemen, colleagues and friends, allow me to share why I feel that bringing considerations of disasters, conflict, and fragility together is a necessary precondition to achieving the sustainable development goals. The world today faces an unprecedented multiplicity and complexity of crisis and extreme challenges regarding violent conflicts. 
these conflicts and natural hazard-related disasters are key drivers of vulnerability. Violent conflicts in the world have increased after decades of relative decline. Since 2010, the number of major violent conflicts has tripled. By 2016, more countries were experiencing violent conflict than at any time in nearly 30 years. At the same time, first estimates expect for 2018 to be another record year for economic loss from natural disasters. After the over the last year, we saw the devastating effects of hurricanes and severe floodings in too many countries. We also have to face the fact that displacement by disasters remain very high. The number of new internally displaced people reached in the last, in 2017, a total of 30 million people. Most of the displacements were caused by natural disasters, but a bit more than one-third were caused by violent conflicts. Disasters hit first and foremost the poorest and most vulnerable people, as they are on the front lines. Besides threatening lives and livelihoods, they undermine long-term development goals, including our common goal to substantially reduce poverty. So disasters are particularly risk multipliers in fragile contexts. There are two basic assumptions on the cor correlation between natural disasters and conflict. First, natural disasters have a very high potential to increase the risk of violent conflict. Why is it so? Because natural disasters can often contribute to grievances of the population, which then often create uh, or further increases conflicts over the access to resources, which gets quite scarce when it comes to conflict. Second, very often conflict and fragility increase the impact of natural disasters. Conflict may, for example, lead to displacing people into areas more exposed to hazards. Like in the case of the Rohingya community, which sought refuge in the highly exposed areas across the border in Bangladesh. And conflict typically undermines the capacity of governments and communities and NGOs to provide protection from natural hazards. And conflict reduces their capacities to help recover from the damages caused by disasters. The 2030 agenda highlighted the recognition that populations in fragile contexts suffer most and are too often cut off from global development efforts. So strengthening resilience and disaster risk reduction are elementary components of the 2030 agenda. SAG 1 to be precisely 1.5 states quite clearly, by 2030, build the resilience of the poor and those in vulnerable situations and reduce their exposure and vulnerability to climate-related extreme events and other economic, social, and environmental shocks and disasters. More and more partner countries of the German Development Corporation are affected by the interplay between conflict, fragility, and disaster risk. 
as the challenge is huge, huge for these societies, joint efforts and tailored approaches are needed. During the spring meeting of the World Bank's GFDRR, major donors resolved to be more engaged in disaster risk reduction in fragile and conflict-affected contexts. At the UNISDR donor meeting in Geneva three weeks ago, we pushed hard to give DRR in fragile and conflict-affected contexts context greater attention. Therefore, Germany, and especially my Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, is very happy to announce a new collaboration between Germany and ODI, and we will work together to advance this approach for the next year, culminating in the launch of a major flagship report on conflict and DRR at the Global Platform for Disaster Risk Reduction in Geneva next year, May. Through this input, we hope to improve the lives of vulnerable people who have to contend with natural hazard-relating disasters in contexts affected by conflict and fragility. Let me close by saying that three years into the implementation of, of the 2030 Agenda, it has become clear that without a significant reorientation in the way we understand and act on the complex interplay of disasters and conflict, the international community risks failing to deliver on its ambition to leave no one behind. By generating an evident space and accelerating a long overdue conversation, together with ODI, we seek to answer the question, what DRR action is viable and appropriate in, fragi in fragile and conflict-affected contexts? Doing so now provides just enough time to reorientate current approaches to managing disaster risk and to influence the remaining 12 years of the Sendai framework on disaster risk reduction. So, let us partner up in favor of the most vulnerable. Thank you very much for your intention. Thank you so much, Dr. Thomas, um, for your remarks. And, and thank you to you and your government for your support of our work. We're really excited to be embarking on this partnership. And you know, today really marks the launch of these initiatives that you know, we hope will culminate in a really groundbreaking flagship report next year at the Global Platform Meeting. And you know, what you just said is really the heart of the discussion today and the work that we want to do to really answer the question of you know, what the other action is appropriate and is feasible in fragile and conflict-affected states. So to answer that, let me start with Katie. You've been working on this for some time. So can you help us you know, set the scene, really, and, and tell us why this is important and why now? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I think I want to start by there was a saying that sort of went around quite a lot in the humanitarian community um, for a few years, which is that disasters do not discriminate. And that is conceptually and practically false. Disasters are neither natural nor conflict neutral. And it's not a coincidence that this statistic we hear, that 58% of disaster deaths occurred in the top 30 fragile states. That's not a coincidence. If we look back over the last couple of decades, we've seen major disasters happen in contexts that are affected by conflict and fragility. For example, in 2008, Cyclone Nargis in Myanmar. 
in 2010, the earthquake in Haiti, throughout last year, a current drought in Somalia, and today, as was mentioned, the very, very real risk um, of flooding facing tens of thousands of Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. So I would argue, and I know many of the, uh, many people in the room would say the same, that actually if we're genuinely serious about supporting the most vulnerable to disasters, then we need to be doing disaster risk reduction in contexts that are affected by violence, conflict and fragility. And that needs to be a priority, both for national governments and the international community. We've actually just completed, as of yesterday, um, some new research by ODI that we're going to be releasing at the Asian Ministerial Conference on disaster risk reduction next month. Um, and it reveals that in just under a decade, 55% of people that were killed by disasters in Asia happened in just four countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Myanmar, and Bangladesh. And all four of those countries are at the top of the Fragile States Index for Asia. And those figures, and I can't stress this enough, they are a conservative estimate. We know that disasters in fragile and conflict-affected contexts, they're underreported and unreported. And there are also massive gaps in the data. So with complete data sets, the proportion of disaster deaths in fragile contexts is likely to be much higher than that. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of the relationship between disasters and conflict, but what I would say, certainly from working on this over the last few years, is that there's a very complex intermediary role that governs the relationship between natural hazard-related disasters and dynamics of peace and conflict. And it makes for a confusing and often quite a contested evidence base. But we do know enough to know that vulnerability to disasters and to conflict can be mutually reinforcing. So we know, for example, that conflict and fragility can increase vulnerability to hazards. They can weaken the capacity of governments and local institutions to protect communities from disasters. Conversely, we know that disaster impacts, such as displacement, food insecurity, and the disruption of markets, has the potential to reinforce known drivers of conflict. Disasters can also exacerbate social exclusion and grievance by strengthening one faction over another, as some people have argued was the case in post-tsunami Sri Lanka. But we also know that disasters can open up political opportunities. And it's contested, but this has certainly been argued in the case for post-tsunami Aceh, and at least for a time in Myanmar after Nargis. So I guess what I would say in terms of setting the stage is that if we actually look as the starting point as people's lived experience of disasters, then it really does point to us being needing to work much more on disaster risk reduction in these places. But for too long, that's been falling through the cracks. I mean, what you're saying is basically that the evidence is clear, but then what have we tried to do to really make sure that attention to conflict and fragility is embedded in disasters frameworks? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I know many people in this room, uh, particularly prior to the Sendai framework, were really championing for there to be inclusion of, of recognition of conflict and fragility in the Sendai framework. And actually, I think that was true across the board. Many technical contributions to all of the post-2015 frameworks, including, for example, by the World Bank, by UNDP, by many civil society networks, try to encourage much more holistic approaches to risk management. But as we all know, the major international frameworks, they're the product of political processes. And those technical inputs were all but invisible by the time that the drafting process came to a close. And if I give you one example, the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction. 
So for two years prior to the Sendai framework, I sat and I listened to government representatives from across Asia and Africa in particular discuss the very complex interplay of the links between climate change and disasters on dynamics of peace and conflict. And I saw inputs to the Sendai framework call for greater recognition of the links between action on disaster risk reduction, climate change adaptation, and conflict prevention, particularly from African states. But on the penultimate day of negotiations, I also sat at three o'clock in the morning and watched the last remaining reference to conflict and fragility, specifically as an underlying driver of vulnerability to disasters be removed from the text. And today, the Sendai framework does not feature the words conflict, fragility, or violence. And actually, that's a problem across all the post-2015 frameworks. There is a neglect of complex and layered risk. So what you'll see in most of the frameworks are lists. We often see lists. There's lists of threats and hazards side by side, but they're rarely considered in terms of their complex interrelationship. Now, I think it's important to clarify that's not to suggest that no work is going on in reducing disaster risk in fragile and conflict-affected states. Actually, quite the opposite. So, for example, in February, I was in Beirut, and I heard the National Disaster Management Agency and the Lebanese Red Cross discuss the challenges of adapting their existing disaster risk reduction interventions to a context where you have massive conflict-related displacement from Syria. We've also seen, for example, and this is certainly featured in our report, civil society organizations like Concern Worldwide who have really actively been trying to take much more holistic approaches to risk. So for example, in Haiti, they've been partnering disaster risk reduction practitioners with those that work on peace and reconciliation. In Somalia, they've very proactively been taking conflict-sensitive approaches to drought and flood mitigation. But those examples, they're, they're too few and far between. And very little exists, either conceptually or practically, on what types of DRR actions are viable and appropriate in fragile and conflict-affected states. And at the moment, there's almost no community of practice to actually champion this issue, either at the national, regional, or international level. Okay, well, let me go to Rina, because Rina, you actually have been one of these champions who've been, you know, really tried to champion um, the, in, if you want, a, a, a more integrated attention to these issues um, in policy spaces. And that comes on the back of, you know, your extensive experience in Asia of, you know, seeing how these two areas really need to be considered together. Can you tell us a little bit about both your experience, but also what you've tried to do in the policy arena? Well, thank you very much. First of all, I'm very, very excited that uh, finally this uh, frank discussion is happening. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So sorry that I cannot be there in person. Uh, I'm here sitting in Washington, D.C., and I hope um, it doesn't really matter because the message is still the same. So let, I mean, um, let me just bring back a little bit on my personal experience, why for me personally, this um, particular topic is super important. I happen to be very lucky. I come from Aceh, where the tsunami, uh, the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004 hit. Um, as an Achenese, I lived through the conflict. So before the tsunami happened, I thought, you know, life will never change again in Aceh. So I think uh, Katie already mentioned a little bit about Aceh experience versus what happened in Sri Lanka after the tsunami. Uh, I think everybody who are who have been working on this topic know 
that uh, Aceh tsunami created political opportunity. At the end, we get peace agreement. And then in Sri Lanka, it's complete opposite that, you know, the, the war somewhat continued. So what most people don't understand is the um, what happened exactly on the ground to the normal people, to the beneficiaries. I um, So my personal experience when the tsunami happened, actually was still under martial law. And then all this influx of um, uh, international workers responding to disaster came into Aceh, who at that time close to the international public for almost like 30 years. Um, all this influx of, of workers came in without knowing that Aceh had conflict. So they, you know, they had this very clear mandate from their organization, their institutions and donors that they have to help the disaster victims. And then on the ground, I was affected by the disaster, but then the one who helped me, um, a family who were affected by conflict, who just moved from the rural areas to Banda Aceh city, and then the, and the disaster happened. And they just started rebuilding their lives and they're still um, uh, struggling. And when um, we get this assistance from disaster, they were denied from the assistance because they, because they are so-called conflict victims. So they're not supposed to get the assistance. So. Uh, while they are hosting disaster victims. So what I'm trying to say on the ground, there's very clear, very little di distinction, actually non-existence, conflict, disaster victim, they don't really matter. And it creates jealousy because I have access to some kind of humanitarian assistance and they have never been helped for more than 30 years. And they're also struggling. And on top of that, they are trying to help the disaster victims. And it and it created a very uh, severe jealousy. and. And unfortunately, all the workers, uh, UN agencies, all NGOs, uh, they are basically cut off guard because there's a conflict there and nobody knows there was a conflict there. So they, there were no policies or regulation that actually can help them try to um, 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 deal with the situation on the ground. So that's first my personal experience. And then they sent me to Pakistan afterward. I thought it was exclusive to, to Aceh. And then it was the same thing again, Kashmir, when the earthquake in 2005 happened. That's another conflict setting. Again, again, and again, I saw that workers, international uh, responders, not equipped to deal with the conflict situation. They, they are afraid to, to, to make the steps. Uh, is it their role to actually create peace or to support peace? Or uh, should they help the, the disaster victims? But they have limited mandate and they have a very clear mandate not to help them just for disaster victims. So again, I had the opportunity to work in Myanmar. And then again, it was the same story again and again. And then I, um, um, uh, as you all know, I worked for the World Humanitarian Summit in the, back in 2015. And then we undertook a couple of regional consultations throughout the world. These topics, whenever we created an event, just a specific session on disaster risk reduction, conflict elements kept on popping up in the discussion and people demanded that we, they wanted a clarity on what they should do on the ground to address the problem. And we tried to consolidate them, put them in the synthesis report, trying to generate um, some kind of uh, action plan or uh, commitments from all partners, but a lot of a lot of people seem to be reluctant. And then, of course, with the Sendai that Katie just explained, that sort of like uh, bring down the the issues a little bit back on the 
on the ground again. It, I, I personally am very um, curious why is this issue is so hard to fly? Um, I think this is something that that is very confusing for me. And 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 at the end of uh, WHS, unfortunately, uh, we still didn't manage to 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 bring this uh, topic <laughs> uh, flying and. And now I joined GFDRR, um, a typical disaster risk reduction um, uh, uh, program that actually support reducing um, uh, reducing vulnerability, building resilience. And unfortunately, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, finally um, all the work on the ground finally come up together. I finally see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so what are you doing? Um, Tell us a bit more. What are you doing? What is GFDRR doing to bring it together concretely? Right. GFDRS uh, have been working in FCB, fragile conflict uh, countries, um, ad hocly. You know, as you know, we have probably over a 140 of our client countries. They are fragile countries. So we have uh, done a lot of operations, disaster, typical disaster operation in Afghanistan, in Somalia, <laughs> all this setting. And then we, we can't avoid not to address those issues. We have, uh, for instance, using DRM disaster risk reduction tools and approaches in countries like Syria and Iraq. And it, 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 ha it creates evidence that disaster risk reduction can be actually a very good entry point for such countries. But now more work that we are trying to do right now, we are finally uh, trying to create one initiative, how we can do better, not ad hocly, but by design, a DRM approach in a fragile and conflict setting. So it's still very new, but I, um, I want to be hopeful. And uh, we, we just pitch in um, this new initiative in our, uh, our uh, in Mexico during understanding risk conference um, uh, at our CG meeting. And uh, we, are, we are hopeful that um, we got, uh, hopefully we will have positive response by from many donors. Um, so we are looking forward that hopefully in the next few months, we will have something tangible, something concrete to report. I think this is a bit too early to say exactly what we are going to do, but the uh, positive work is emerging here and there. and. Um, I don't want to uh, talk something too much before everything actually fall in place, but this is the best timing, and I'm, I cannot be more excited than, than I am right now. I mean, after 12 years, after the tsunami, something's finally happening. I'll Thanks. stop there, and then we can have more conversation sure. afterward. Well, but, but, Amjad, you've got a lot of experience of you know, working particularly with African governments mm. on these things. What, what are the obstacles to think in a more holistic way about risk? What, 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 why is it so hard, you know, as Lina is I saying? Think, no, thank you, Sarah. And I, I just wanted to just stress again that um, the challenge of disastrous reduction, uh, as with due respect to uh, fr fragile and conflict-affected country, the challenge of raising awareness about the importance of disastrous reduction is still there and we're still trying to overcome that the, the big picture issue so that's very important for us we're working on that uh, practically as much as possible but i just want don't and want people to lose focus of the fact that disastrous reduction is still uh, uh, undermined or under in competition with the with the cnn effect with the humanitarian uh, needs and 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 that particular area of work where there is 
much more attention paid for paid for paid by the donors and international community so that's very important to, to note now having said that um, I think uh, I've, I've worked both in Africa and the Arab uh, states and the report of ODI has an interesting statement I think you you call it the, the Sunday framework is conflict blind and I think that that you explain why because there's no mention of the, of the language on conflict violence and so on but that does not preclude us uh, in at the regions from actually doing uh, making progress on disaster risk reduction now when it comes to the Sendai framework I, I believe uh, we have and are making progress in disaster risk reduction when it comes to two of the priorities of the four prior two of the four priorities of the Sendai framework namely the first one on understanding risk and the second one on governance. The third one has to do with investment in, in risk. There, there we have problems in, in fragile conflict-affected countries. Indeed, we have problems in least, development uh, least developed countries because of obvious financial uh, weaknesses when it comes to financial uh, capacities and making uh, resources available to, uh, uh, to or mainstreaming disaster risk reduction resources into, into the various government uh, ministries. Now, I have found it easier to work uh, at the regional level and the sub-regional level. And I have to say that in, I think in the example of Africa, the issue of uh, conflict and viol uh, um, uh, working, you know, implementing disaster risk reduction in conflict-affected areas and fragile areas uh, came as a surprise, the fact that it wasn't there in the, in the Sendai framework. And, and I think that has to do with the fact that the way the, the, the Sendai framework was negotiated, um, a lot of the... Uh, uh, the negotiators in Sendai, in Japan, or in the prep meetings before uh, that led up to the to, to Japan, the Sendai meeting, uh, are actually more the political uh, negotiators. They're not the DRR practitioners in many ways. They're not the actual disaster risk reduction practitioners. So when we went to the regional level, we found that disaster risk reduction practitioners uh, welcomed, uh, including the uh, uh, conflict and fragile affected states. One example of that is the African Union. Uh, last year uh, endorsed at its, the highest level of the African Union Summit the program of action for the implementation of the Sendai framework in Africa. One of the sentences in that document calls for a coherent approach uh, to uh, disaster risk reduction that takes into account, as uh, Dr. Thomas said, the SDGs, the climate change, and, the, and conflict and fragility. So for them, it came there nonchalantly. It wasn't uh, an issue of, of contention or anything of that sort. Now, that has actually translated at the sub-regional level, uh, where uh, sub-regional organizations, where we call, we call regional economic communities, such as EGAD, ECOWAS, SADAC, have actually um, translated that into their own sub-regional strategies for disaster risk reduction. They've developed those. So there are structures in place to take forward disaster risk reduction uh, in Africa, including in fragile and conflict-affected states. There is some work there. We can get into that later. Um, and more importantly, uh, these same uh, regional organizations, such as the African Union and the regional economic communities, have actually established disaster risk reduction units with staff, human beings sitting there to, to try and, 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 and move this across. So the political buying at the regional, sub-regional level is there. So I think, uh, you know, we, we've had a lot of good experience, Sarah, with, uh, with this, and there's a lot of positive uh, progress being made. But uh, having said that, the issue, I go back to my first point, is the issue of the disaster risk reduction 
awareness about DRR and not confusing it with the disaster response is still an issue for us. There's about 32 out of the 44 sub-Saharan African countries that have uh, national strategy on disaster risk reduction, claim to have national strategy on disaster risk reduction. But when you look at them, you find that they are response uh, strategies. So there's a lot of work to do there. And one of the important things that I need to uh, uh, quickly finish with is that uh, the first deadline coming up uh, for Sendai uh, is the target E of the Sendai framework, which is the, 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 the target related to the fact that all countries should report, uh, develop national strategies for disaster risk reduction. This happens in 2020, so this is right in front of us. And I think that would be an important opportunity to bring in uh, the agenda of the um, fragile and conflict affected and the importance of including that and taking, taking it into account when implementing disaster risk reduction framework. So there is a lot of progress in that. So that's clearly a critical opportunity to seize, you know, going forward, trying to use, you know, the achievement of Target yeah. to push that agenda. What are other opportunities? I'm, I'm thinking of the, the African Arab Ministerial Conference, you know, on, on disaster risk reduction, but there may be others that you have in mind. Yeah, I think, um, it, it's important uh, just to announce also that uh, the African Arab Conference, African and Arab Conference, is the first time they were actually combining the two regions on disaster risk reduction, uh, or the, what we call the regional platform, will be held in October in Tunisia. Uh, this is very, it's, it's a tricky one, and <laughs> we hope we'll be able to, uh, to uh, sort of bring the two regions together to at least share uh, practices. But they both, both regions have... Uh, Obviously, uh, the, uh, the issue of fragility and conflict is very important in the countries there. Uh, so I, I think the best thing we can do is at least, uh, because we have a ministerial segment in, the, in that particular conference, is to reach some sort of um, political, uh, provide some sort of, ensure that we have include some sort of political language in the political declaration, the ministerial le level declaration, which can there, uh, thereafter be taken at the highest level, the African Union Summit, and maybe I'm dreaming here, and the League of Arab States Summit, to ensure that it is endorsed as, as something that is accepted, uh, uh, meaning that fragile, um, conflict-affected and fragile countries have to have uh, deserved and due attention in terms of uh, implementing disaster uh, reduction program, and that the political uh, support by the heads of states and by national governments uh, has to be there, and one way to do that is, is, is to make sure that we use the regional platform, the African and Arab states, as a vehicle for that. Great. Well, let, let me come to Aisha. Um, Rina has already given us the flavor, you know, what, the, what it has meant for her to be sort of been in an environment which obviously was affected by conflict and um, by a natural hazard disaster at the same time. You've done a lot of work in Pakistan, in the Philippines. Give us a flavor of what it means, you know, for what's the lived experience of people that are you know, affected by insurgency, by an, you know, an, an armed conflict, and at the same time by a natural hazard. Um, thank you. It's uh, a real pleasure to, to be here and talk a little bit about um, the kind of work that I do. And as you know, I, I, come, I come at this very much from kind of an academic background. So. Uh, the work that I do is that I um, use kind of anthropological methods where I spend time with people who are affected by disasters uh, who are, and who are also living amidst uh, conflict and insurgency to try and understand that kind of um, how the, uh, the two experiences are, are, are lived. 
and um, to kind of uh, present to you some very, very new research that I've been doing um, in the Philippines, because I think that that kind of shows how um, the, the not understanding of the issue or the lack of understanding of these issues creates a very specific set of problems and, and um, challenges. So I was working in this part of the Philippines that's affected by a communist insurgency, and it was uh, in 2012 affected by this really large kind of Category 5 typhoon as well. And um, there were they were very large kind of um, a, a very high death toll because so, a, a lot of people were buried under debris and they were never found. But additionally, there are all of the, the challenges of the insurgency and military em encampments and, and, and all the rest of it. So what the state thought they would do in one of the most affected uh, parts of, uh, of this, this community was that they would relocate everyone away from the hazardous area. Um, and they were provided kind of uh, land titles in the, in, in the relatively safer area. They were provided building materials to construct houses. They were given cash transfers. They were provided with all of this so that they could be safer. And it, it was, to, the, to, to credit to the state, it was meant to be a kind of universal intervention that everyone that, who lives in the, in the hazardous area should, should receive this. What kind of ended up happening on the ground was that only those people who were relatively privileged enough to have a, a, a land title to show that they lost a house were given a new house. So everyone who didn't have a land title then got left behind. Everyone who was kind of physically disabled and couldn't climb up to the higher area got left behind. Everyone who, who happened to be from the indigenous, the more vulnerable communities, etc., couldn't couldn't show all the paperwork, got left behind. So effectively, you had this whole kind of area of people who were just vulnerable and marginalized still living in the hazardous area. And they're still living in the hazardous area, which also uh, ultimately makes them much more vulnerable to the conflict, because now on paper, at least, no one should be living in that hazardous area. It should be abandoned, technically. So the military is now allowed to construct an encampment right in the middle of the main road, which otherwise, in rules of engagement, they're not allowed to do. They're meant to be whatever, 40, some kilometers away from the main road. But now they're right in the middle of the main road. So in kind of my conversations with people, when I was asking them what are they kind of most afraid of, they're in fact most afraid of this state state's idea of security. They don't want this military encampment here. What they're most afraid of is that they're going to get stuck in the encounter between the military and the insurgents. So now they're more vulnerable to the hazard, and they're also more vulnerable to the encounters between the military and the insurgents. So what was meant to be kind of relocation of people, um, you know, we're intervening in the aftermath. And this was a relatively kind of thought through intervention. There were some mines and geosciences bureau, some NGOs guys went out there and did a survey and did their studies and all of that. So what was meant to be kind of a, a, a relocation uh, policy has ended up creating all sorts of vulnerabilities for people who are already vulnerable. And, and, and repeatedly in my work and also, also in, in, in Pakistan, there was definitely this sense that what people are afraid of are, are very often those very ideas of security that the state is championing. So I think there's a real disconnect between how the state is understanding security and between the, the lived experience of, of, of people who are ex 
who are experiencing the disaster, the insurgency, the conflict, and in the case of Pakistan, a certain kind of, 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 of Islamist radicalization as well. So what do you think should have happened? How could have this been operationalized in a different way, you know, the response, you know, bringing together an understanding of both risks and managing it together? Um, that, that, that's a good question. And I think um, as an academic, I always kind of shy away and say it's complicated. But I will kind of, um, I, I, you know, uh, throughout another um, uh, experience of, 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 of undertaking this research, which was that when I was in the kind of municipal DRM uh, offices and they were doing, so of course the Philippines is also quite a poster child for doing, for getting a lot of DRR right, you know, and, and they were doing something that was quite kind of engaging, quite bottom up. They had called people down from, from specifically kind of far off um, barrios and they had, they had come and they were creating these very local hazard maps and, and all of that with the municipal DRM officers. And there was a whole workshop, a day-long workshop taking place. And what was really kind of, and I, and I, and I think this is going to, in a roundabout way, um, <laughs> address your question. When, when, when um, I was witnessing this, in, um, this engagement between the people and the, the MDRM officers, there was definitely this sense that people were like, no, no, and this area, we want to star here. We want to say this is conflict, or we want to avoid this area. And the municipal DRM guys had no idea what to do with that. They were like, no, no, let's not, let's not talk about this. Like, let's talk about where, it, where is the, the most, the highest or the greatest hazard with regards to the flooding, with regards to the landslide. They, they, they weren't really able to, to, to put the conflict in the, in the context of the hazard maps that they were creating. And I think it, it, it's very kind of true the other way around as well. When you speak to the, the, the security agencies, they're also equally kind of like, no, no, we, we are talking about a hard security, about keeping the insurgents out. We're not talking about keeping people safe from things like, like flooding and landslides and typhoons. So I think both both sides, there's almost no understanding that, that, that the two have to be integrated because they are in people's everyday lives and their everyday experiences. Well, you're nodding a lot. The, do you have any exam, good example of how you've seen this you know, be done, um, if not well, but better than in many other places? Well, I, I, was, I was mentioning earlier to uh, Katie, who had a little meeting here, is that um, looking at the fragile, uh, the list of fragile countries and conflict-affected countries that the OECD has done, I realized that uh, we are working in Africa in particular in 53% of those countries, but we're not labeling them as fragile and, and conflict-affected. And, uh, and, and the success we have made has to do, the key thing that we're looking at for in those countries is to collect evidence. Evidence on the disaster loss, evidence on the, on, on, uh, in terms of losses, economic losses, uh, human losses, property, et cetera. And, and one of the things that we're trying to do, we're, we're doing this in about over 30 countries now in Africa have that. Uh, about seven or eight in the Arab states have that, which is what we call the disaster loss database. And it's basically a historical database that goes back 30 years to uh, identify and um, collect statistics on where these losses are happening in these countries. And with that, uh, once we have that, uh, we're able to be able, we're able to actually use it to inform development, identify, identify where the vulnerabilities are, and so forth and so on. There's one story that if I could quickly just say. Many years ago, I was uh, working in the humanitarian fields and I was working in Sierra Leone. 
And uh, I remember distinctly that that country had a lot of rain, you know. And later on, I realized that it has the highest level of rainfall in, uh, in Africa. Later, I also noticed during my stay there that the rain didn't cause too much trouble. It, 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 there were natural drainage uh, that were just carved into mountains. Uh, and I, it struck me that it was very interesting that, you know, you get all this amount of rain, highest in Africa, and it just, uh, you know, drains uh, without too much harm. Last year, in August of uh, 2017, there was this major uh, tragedy in Sierra Leone in which um, about 1,000 people died uh, because of a landslide that occurred, you know, in, in, in a post-conflict fragile country. And uh, it, it brought to mind to me, it's like, what happened? What happened? What happened was uh, people created new risk in this particular fragile country. They created new risk, uh, an urban, uh, a risk of an urban nature in which unplanned uh, uh, structures were, were, unplanned structures were built and were, and, and actually, uh, affected the way uh, the natural uh, movement of water and floods. So, you know, these are things that uh, are, for me, it, it struck me so much, so hard that that particular point was important. And we're trying to understand that. We're trying to, you know, identify these risk areas. You know, this is one of the examples. We need to find out in our disaster loss databases, okay, this occurred here, and how many, these are the losses that were made in terms of lives, and these are the losses that made instead of economic uh, losses. And therefore, when we plan again in Sierra Leone, we need to make sure that we don't make the same, same mistake again, create new risk. Like how you started with the positive side, which is the database, but we ended up telling us another horror story, I, I, basically. I, I, I <laughs> any, any positive one, Katie, from all the research you have done that we can really take away and think, oh, wow, that's, the moment, that's something to be inspired by? Yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, one of the reasons why um, this topic, I think, is so tricky is because you do tend to come back to this challenge of its, you know, its context specific. And I think what's interesting is that there's the real, a real sort of disparity at the moment. So there's a lot of work that's happening on the ground, for example, through civil society organizations doing community-based disaster risk reduction in really difficult to work operating environments. So there are really good examples. And a lot of them are documented. A lot of them have robust monitoring evaluation systems. And, you know, there's lots of reports showing the experiences and the lessons from those individual interventions. But, but there's nothing that brings that all together. Like, we're often asked as ODI, oh, can you, can you point me in the direction of some literature or some advice on, okay, how do you design a new disaster risk reduction program in this particular type of context of conflict? And, and I can't point people to anything. It's, there's a lot out there, but it's fragmented. It's not collated in a way that's useful. Most of it doesn't sort of have uh, descriptions at the end about actually genuine, genuinely what's learned that might be applicable in other contexts, what was very context specific. It's, yeah, there's, there's a real sort of disparity at the moment, sort of on the one hand where there's a lot of grounded experience, but there's, there's no bringing together of that experience in a way that's actually useful. Fair enough. Well, let me open to the audience. We've, had, you know, we've talked quite a lot. I realize that we've got about um, uh, 40 minutes left. So um, raise your hand if you want to take the floor. Um, there'll be microphones going around. Say who you are if you are affiliated to any particular organizations. I do encourage our colleagues who are following online to also put questions through the chat that is at the bottom of your uh, screen. Um, let me see who wants to start. Hi, my... Is it on? 
should be. Yeah, sure. <laughs> My name is uh, Samantha Melers. Uh, I'm from the Institute of Social Studies in The Hague, uh, and I'm actually also involved as a PhD candidate, um, looking at um, also where disasters, social natural disasters and conflicts uh, collide in that sense, uh, together in the project uh, with uh, Professor Dorothea Hillhorst. Um, we are also looking at, at different uh, countries, and, and even though we're looking more towards the response, uh, DRR is obviously also a very important uh, issue that, uh, that come up, comes up in our research as well. Um, and the report was very, uh, very useful, and I think it's a very great uh, context and saying, okay, this is the state where we are at, where we are at now, uh, currently, and what are the, pr uh, the current approaches that are taken. Um, but if you were talking about what DRR actions are viable and appropriate for conflict settings, um, and also acknowledging that DRR is very political uh, in any kind of uh, action that we do, um, we are also really looking at the actors that are there, right? Uh, and I see the, the states also mentioned uh, in, in the report because most of the approaches are very state-centered. Uh, also in the, in the policies, they are uh, very important. I see a lot of UN, I see a lot of INGOs, but I actually don't see a lot of local <laughs> in the, in the reports uh, coming up. Uh, and if we are talking about um, making DRR also parts of the, of the, of the humanitarian um, aid uh, context more than the development context, um, then we also have the grand bargain, and we also have all the promises that we are actually going to go more local, and we're going to give more responsibility to the local actors, so either the, the, the NGOs, civil society organizations, and the communities themselves, because the communities are obviously the first DRR actors that are there. Uh, but I didn't see that coming up too much uh, in the report now, so that, that, that kind of made me a little bit worried that we are, again, taking more of the, the top-down uh, approach when we are talking about this very important topic. Um, so, I was just wondering, what are what is their role in uh, in all of this? Thank you, um, the gentleman at the front. Here. Thanks very much. Um, my name is Ali Carnworth uh, from Concern Worldwide. Uh, as Katie mentioned, we contributed some of our experiences to the paper, and we're delighted to be associated with it. Um, uh, this, following on really from the last question, I, mean, I suppose one of our key um, uh, learnings from our experience of delivering uh, DRR in, in, in fragile states is the importance of those local dynamics and the importance of understanding uh, how conflict plays out uh, at the local level and the way in which that interacts with other risks. Uh, and it was interesting to hear uh, in um, the panels discussion of the kind of disconnect between uh, national level perception of, of conflicts and the lived experience. Um, so, I mean, just in relation to the, the point that you made, Abdad, around the uh, targetee of SFDRR and the uh, national um, uh, strategies on DRR, also, you know, the importance of local strategies on DRR. And so it'd be interesting to get some reflections on how those national and local strategies need to interface to ensure that they're drawing up those local level experiences. Thank you very much. Well, since you're there just next to you. Thank you. Um, Meg Ibrahim with World Vision UK. I appreciate all of the um, panel's contributions. I wanted to just highlight as well some of the um, challenges that I've noted within our practice mm -hmm. is quite similar um, to what Dr. Sadiq was saying in terms of um, 
capacity of actors to bring together the different um, disciplinary frames. So as a, a DRM um, expert, um, it's quite difficult to incorporate power analysis. And that is also true for our agencies, to bring together those two disciplines um, or the, the, the two uh, approaches into uh, a holistic way of working requires more than um, tools and approaches. It requires capacity building. It requires um, actually, you know, space and time to get together to, to learn each other's uh, approaches and, and work together, but also requires an engagement with communities that's very um, sensitive and empowering, which then also requires trust and relationship building, which then also then requires quite a commitment and time um, and empowerment agenda. So it's almost reformulating quite a lot of the approaches um, that agencies such as ourselves face um, when trying to do our best of empowerment and development. Um, under quite constrained conditions. Um, so I, I'm very excited about this conversation. I've been working in this area for uh, quite a while. Um, what I would like to see is some of the, the conversation move around the systemic drivers that keep us having this um, conversation or mute us. Um, so yes, um, that would be my uh, plea. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, I've got a gentleman here, and then here, and then I think I'll come back to the panel. Oh, and I've got some more light. Hi, my name is George Friedrich. I'm from the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex. I just have a question in relation to uh, the civil society organizations on the ground. <clears throat> well, evidently, uh, Many agencies operating there within conflict-affected areas are from the UN system or from the uh, OECD member countries. And much aid is also coming from the OECD, so I'm wondering if that is actually a sustainable solution for the future because most of the funding actually goes to the UN agencies or agencies from OECD member countries and therefore leaving civil society organizations out of the picture when it comes to you know framing uh, the models, conceptualizing the problems, and so on. So um, my question is, to what extent do you think uh, that is sustainable for the long run? Thanks, and gentlemen here. Uh, Richard Hughes from uh, uh, the International Council for Monuments and Sites and from ICOP, uh, both of them representing various interests to UNESCO. Um, I, whether it's fortunate or not, my, my experience goes back to the 1980s from working in Pakistan and then subsequently in Syria and Yemen. The one thing that seems to me, um, from looking back uh, over quite a long time, is the lack of continuity, whether it's at the community level or at the NGO level or at the government level, is that you go through training, practical workshops, uh, capacity development, to call you what, what, what you like, but um, there is a tendency for it to be a, a fashion of the time and for us to find that all of these go round in circles and that you start having to reapply it as people move on, as they get new jobs, new positions. 
um, as money comes into the system and goes out of the system. And that, that continuity, I think, is absolutely critical and providing a mechanism by which that, that can be achieved would be a, a major benefit to us. Thank you very much. Let me come back to the panel. I'll go out for another round. I've got quite a lot of questions from the online audience. So try and be brief in your in your reply so we can take more questions afterwards. But there is quite a nice complementarity in the questions is really focusing on, you know, the local experience and you know the, the power dynamics and you know how people really are agents of, of this change. Aisha, maybe start, I'll start with you to answer some of these questions because you spend so much time trying to analyze that. Um, thank you. I think um, you're right. A, a, a lot of these questions kind of really are on point with uh, particularly the kind of uh, local dynamics and, and, and power struggles um, on the ground that you kind of experience that have very, very particular impacts. But I just kind of, for a moment, want to say something slightly controversial, which is that I don't think um, it's helpful to romanticize the local, right? Because again, I, I've, I've, I've come out of, of spending all this time at the at the community level, and when you ask, for example, in at, at a barangay, which is like a small bar,